Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, May 15th. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We get the mayor's thoughts on the province's decision to pause the Stage 1 reopening for the City of Calgary and the impact it has had on local businesses. Next, we look at the challenges faced by our city's restaurant industry, particularly with this week's announcement that openings have been put on hold for now. We get the views of a crisis management expert. Then we hear details on new research focused on frontline health care workers and the impact the pandemic is having on their mental health, including the potential for PTSD. Backyard practice drills, online skill challenges and video chats with teammates and coaches. Advice for parents on how we can keep our kids connected to organized sports during social isolation. And finally, we travel stateside for our weekly conversation with Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. We get the latest on the coronavirus crisis, which has now claimed over 86,000 lives in the U.S. We'd like to spend time uh, with our weekly update on this state of the city by Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, folks. Looking forward to the long weekend, I hope. Oh, yes, sir. Even during a pandemic, a long weekend <laughs> means that much more. Obviously, we want to talk about the, well, a partial relaunch when it comes to the city of Calgary. And Mr. Mayor, I, I, I get from your our conversations with you and your statements in the media over the past couple of weeks that uh, the partial relaunch of Calgary was not a surprise to you. Well, it was a surprise in terms of the timing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's certainly something that I think was the right thing to do. I've been pushing for a couple of weeks that the province be very clear about what targets we have to reach for us to move forward with the various stages of opening and what they're really looking at. And I was happy that they published the data, and it was clear that the data showed that the partial relaunch was the right thing to do. I kind of wish, well, I don't kind of wish, I do wish that they had given more warning uh, to a lot of those businesses and others who were really ready to go rather than announcing it at 3.30 on a Wednesday afternoon to take effect on Thursday morning. You know, I was kind of surprised, Mr. Mayor, to hear Dr. Dina Hinshaw taking some of the heat for that, when really this is a cooperative effort by all the people who are in charge to make the right decision for the majority of the people, correct? Well, ultimately, she makes the recommendation. Now, the province can choose to ignore the public health data. Uh, That would be a bad thing to do. Um, But... You know, this was a data-driven decision, and there's, you know, most people, and I should say the vast majority of Calgarians seem quite happy with this decision. I'm really encouraging people to support, you know, I'm telling people to make hard sacrifices during all this. Stay home, watch TV. Now, my hard sacrifice for the long weekend is, if you have the means to do it, eat a lot. (laughs) And um, try and uh, utilize uh, pickup and... uh, delivery from local restaurants mm-hmm. to help them get through that inventory of food they may have purchased. Now, the vast majority of restaurants as well, we're going to wait anyway to see how the big guys did uh, through the opening. But there are some that had ordered food in preparation for an opening, and, and let's make sure that doesn't go to waste. Uh, but ultimately, most people seem happy. Those that don't seem happy, and, you know, general rules, stay off social media, kind of, uh it was okay for a while during the pandemic, and now it's gone crazy again. I was told <laughs> yesterday that this is all because of the Huawei 5G facial recognition towers that are going up all over Calgary. Um, I, I can show you a map of all the 5G towers over Calgary. Uh, there are none. Um, but but a lot of people are basically saying there's some dark conspiracy here, and the politicians did all this work to delay this because we wanted to hurt the restaurant. Like, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the data are the data. And we have a high community transmission rate in Calgary, and that's why the decision was made. How about uh, where do you fall on the, you know, 
question is being asked that support uh, from the government uh, should be there to pay back the costs for the restaurant industry's uh, non-launch yesterday. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, uh, I think it's a good idea, but ultimately that'll take a while to figure out. And we have the power as consumers to make a big difference for those restaurants. And that's really what I'm encouraging people to do. But my broad message right now is there are so many mixed emotions out there. And I just want everyone to be kind. You know, be kind to those restaurants that are legally opening. Don't give them any backlash. They made a decision for their business and for their employees. Be kind to those businesses that are saying, look, I I don't feel right about this. I'm not ready to do this. Uh, Be kind to those that were hoping to open and couldn't by supporting them as you can this weekend. You know, be kind to people who think this is too fast. Be kind to people who think this is too slow. Uh, Just try to be nice to one another. I think that's the critical issue uh, that we face because we have different opinions. But more important than that is everyone has to be safe. And I need to remind people again, the reason for easing the restrictions is not because COVID is gone. There's still no treatment. There's still no cure. There's still no vaccine. What it is is that people have done a great job over these last couple of months in flattening the curve. So the healthcare system has room. There is room in the ICU for you. But I need to remind people that most people who get into the ICU still die. And so for this to work, we have to work even harder on physical distancing, on staying two two meters or six feet apart. Uh, You should always, as Dr. Hinshaw says, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it anymore. You should always cover your face, cover your nose and your mouth uh, with a mask or a bandana or a fabric covering anytime you're going to come into contact with people you don't know who can't be traced. Uh, These are common sense things to do so that we can continue with easing restrictions and getting people back to work. Thank you for your time this morning, Mayor. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. You too. That's Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. 812 on the morning news. Hard-hit Calgary restaurateurs are fighting COVID-19 demons from all sides, including the provincial government's last-minute move to pause the phased reopening in YYC. With a look at the ongoing struggles of the hospitality industry, we are joined by Shannon Larkins, a crisis communications expert who's been studying the local restaurant scene since the p- pandemic uh, pandemic hit. Good morning to you, Shannon. Good morning. Shannon, it's got to be very difficult uh, for these restaurants who have no rule book. Nobody's ever been through this before, and all of a sudden it's your business. Uh, tell us what you're hearing from restaurant owners. You know, it, it absolutely is... Um I talked to early on, talked to Michael Noble of Notable and the Nash restaurants and just hearing in his voice the pain of laying off, you know, at the beginning they were faced with laying off all of their staff, people that they're close to, um, and closing the restaurant. He said about March 16th, he could tell the the people had petered off coming in. They closed for a couple of weeks. Um, as did a number of restaurants, trying to decide what what to even do. Um, And then they had to recreate an entire new business process with takeout, curbside pickup, figuring out what people even wanted to eat. Um, And then to be hit with this, um, starting to open up again and, and like, stop, start, not knowing, you know, where's that date going to be? It's really heartbreaking for this industry. I mean, margins are are tight in the restaurant world anyway, Shannon, in the best of times. So does this sound like to you we may lose some of these restaurants when we come out the other side of this pandemic? You know, uh, in in a crisis 
about 25% of businesses across the board fail. Um, we're hearing numbers like about 50% of restaurants will close um, through this pandemic and it could be more. And with these kind of things happening, um, the likelihood of that it increases, especially, you know, what, what we're really seeing because this is an unprecedented crisis is everybody's fighting for their lives. So I was listening to the mayor um, talk to you earlier and say, you know, Calgarians get at your pocketbooks and go, go support these restaurants. And we have to remember that the entire population is in crisis. And so for, for restaurants, the ones that are really doing well right now, um, they're, they're recognizing that people are plagued with um, decision fatigue, um, they're strapped for cash. And so they're, they're, they're targeting what they offer to this population. Um, and that has really helped some businesses um, for instance, I talked to Cody Willis of Native Tongue. They had their best day ever in the history of their restaurant last week wow. on Taco Tuesday. And Cinco de Mayo, those two things helped when you're offering up tacos. Um, but they, he, he said right away they, they closed also for a couple of weeks. Um, but they, they knew that they had something special to offer. But instead of just saying, come support us, they said, we're going to support you back and brought to curbside pickup, brought back Monday margaritas, Taco Tuesdays, and those kind of price enhancements for clients. And that helped them stave away money from third-party apps like Uber Eats or Skip the Mm -hmm. Dishes that are scraping so much off the top. So it's, it's, it's kind of going, okay, we're in crisis, but our target clients are in crisis too how do we help them help us is that you work in crisis communications and you know you are studying this do you hope to use this to help clients out because as as it seems like you've laid out to us no business is the same and there's no uh, real one two three recipe for success during this pandemic no what we've seen as as successful so at native tongue for instance with tacos and we were, were i was talking to cody the owner there about the ice cream success that we're seeing with Made by Marcus, Village Ice Cream, they can't keep enough ice cream in stock. There's People are looking for some of those little pampering luxuries that are still affordable uh, right now. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. The other thing that we're seeing that really helps, and I talked to Gwendolyn Richards, who's a food critic, um, because we're People are plagued with this, what I call decision fatigue. We don't know how to grocery shop anymore. We don't, you know, there's so many things impacting our lives. We're homeschooling. So the other restaurants are really seeing success by trimming their menus right down. Some are only offering one item so that you can go on and know you're going to get a good family meal. And it's not taking too much of your time and energy to do that. And you don't have to face a grocery store. Well, it's an ongoing discussion and uh, we'll hopefully see more and more restaurants being able to open up soon. Thanks for joining us, Shannon. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Shannon Larkins, crisis communications expert. 7.50 right now, we're joined uh, for a quick chat with David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent. Good morning, David. Morning, guys. How you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. A lot of the country's businesses taking their first cautious steps. We here in Alberta, of course, uh, towards the reopening. The prime minister expected to announce anything new today? Yeah, a couple of things, and one of them is about uh, help for businesses. Uh, a lot of businesses have been using the federal wage subsidy. Remember, this is the program 
in which employers can get 75% of their wages of their employees paid for by the feds. Now, this program uh, started up in March the 15th. It was supposed to end on June the 6th. And it looks like today the PM is going to announce that they're going to extend that program. So employers can plan to have additional federal subsidies for their wages. One interesting thing about this, when the feds uh, um, unleashed this program in the spring, they thought it was going to cost about $73 billion. They thought this would be the biggest program that they would have. And in fact, we've only spent $3.4 billion to this point. So I think the Fed is saying there's still room for uptake on this. So um, so that's what's going to uh, happen today. Businesses get that. And then I think as well for people who work in hospital research institutes. And for technical reasons, these folks had sort of fallen through the cracks. And there's about 15,000 researchers across the country that are working on things like cancer uh, research and stroke research, important stuff, not COVID stuff, but still important stuff. And they were all facing layoffs basically this week or next because their funding had dried up. So the PM's going to announce some uh, money kicked in for that. And last thing, once again, you may have already reminded students that today's the day to reply for your Canada Emergency Student Benefit, CESB. We're calling it the CESB to go along with the CERB and the CEBA. (laughs) You've got your CESB for students. You do that online at Canada.ca. Today's the day they're taking CESB applications. Lots to keep on top of, and I'm sure the students would not want to miss that application process again opening up today. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, no problem, guys. That is David Aiken, Global's Chief Political Correspondent. 610 on your Friday morning. Initial reports from the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic suggest healthcare workers are at high risk for moral injury. With more, we're joined by Homewood Chair in Mental Health and Trauma and Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University, Margaret McKinnon. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Margaret, what constitutes moral injury? Is that like PTSD, for example? Part of um, the spectrum of PTSD symptoms, and I think Romeo Dallaire really captured this beautifully when he talked about the difficult choices that he had to make in Rwanda. So these were choices that violated his personal morals and ethics. And also he felt, I think, essentially betrayed by the UN because they didn't provide the support that he needed. So moral injury really involves when you have to do things or witness things that violate your morals and your ethics, or you feel that you're not receiving the support that you should have from someone who should be giving you that support. Margaret, you mentioned Romeo Dallaire. And besides, you know, maybe the military aspect, is this quite common in the medical field and for frontline workers in cities? Can we give examples of this happening in the past, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. certainly among um, public safety personnel, so firefighters, police officers, people involved in public safety, it's very common. Um, so, for example, a fire captain who might have to decide whether he sends um, the firefighters into a burning building that's about to collapse to save the children inside, or he realizes that that building's about to collapse um, and he won't be able to send the firefighters in. And that would be something that person would likely live with for the rest of their life in terms of having to make that very difficult decision, which is essentially between wrong and wronger. So when we look at our frontline workers during this current pandemic, what would violate their moral ethics? Is that sort of, I know, an example that we hear where, you know, nurses had to make the decision as to who got ventilators, say, would it be something like that? 
Yeah, it absolutely would be. So, you know, we've been lucky in Canada that we haven't had the scarcity of personal protective equipment and ventilators that we expected. But a good example would be that nurse going into a nursing home in in conditions that are really unthinkable. So patients who have been left for several days um, without care. And that's something that violates their training, violates their experience. And it's something that's really difficult to prepare for. How would somebody know? I mean, if you're a frontline worker and you've experienced a moral injury, how would somebody know the difference between just having a bad day and maybe being a little tired uh, versus, uh, you know, this is something I should get checked out? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we often talk about that in terms of how it's interfering with other parts of your life. So if, for example, you're having a lot of difficulty sleeping, you're having a lot of difficulty connecting with your family and with your friends, you're having difficulty concentrating or focusing while you're at work, these are often signs that it really is time to reach out for help. With moral injury, what many people tend to feel is a sense of guilt and shame. So feeling that they could have done something differently and that shame is carried with them day to day. And when that feeling becomes overwhelming, that's a time when it's really important to reach out for the help that you need. Do you think that the frontline workers are also, you know, experiencing some sort of uh, trauma just in having to go to work and be right there with the people who are so sick and their own personal infection risk and maybe the, the worry of taking it home to their children, for example? Absolutely. And I think that what's really important to recognize is that healthcare workers are like everyone else. They come with unique vulnerabilities and with unique strengths. So many, for example, will already have a history of trauma, which can be really triggering in this environment. And we certainly know that healthcare workers going into these settings, some are is part of their identity and it's something they want to be part of the action. They want to be heroic. And for other people, it can be really difficult. They do struggle with that fear and that fear not only of transmission to themselves, but certainly to their children and to their family members. And that's really another form of moral injury, um, that concern that you will have brought something home that otherwise wouldn't be there. Margaret, what is the uh, treatment by mental health care professionals when it comes to PTSD or a a moral injury? What what sort of a process would somebody go through to, to get treated? Yeah, that's a great question. So typically we start by doing an assessment to understand what are the symptoms that people are experiencing. And then we present that in a very clinical way to help bring awareness around the symptoms because often knowing can be a first step in um, in treatment. We also witness what the person experienced and we believe them. And that's really the first step in trauma treatment to be able to tell your story to someone who's sympathetic and who understands what's do, happened and believe you. Do services then need to be made available more so than what is at their fingertips at this point then, especially coming out of this pandemic, things that will be able to help them get what they need? Yeah, we have five hospitals across Ontario who are directly providing support to healthcare workers. Um, I work at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, and that is one of the hospitals that's providing direct support to healthcare workers. And I think that's really terrific and really needed. Wonder if we have it here in Alberta. Do you know that at all? I expect you do. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I very much expect that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, you know, there is presumptive PTSD legislation for public safety personnel, meaning that if they um, have a workplace injury involving PTSD, it's presumed to be part of the work. It have occurred in the workplace. And I think healthcare workers going forward are going to really need that legislation as well, because the amount of injury incurred during the pandemic is just going to be something that we really, really need to address. And they need to have quick and easy access access to treatment and support. Is this something that happens, you know, uh, you know, 
during the pandemic proper? Or is, is this something that can happen down the line to these workers, say, months later or years later? Yeah, we know that many people will experience the symptoms um, immediately after in the aftermath of the trauma exposure. But, you know, up to 50 percent, their symptoms won't emerge until much later. So it could be a year later or even years later. So I think we'll be dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic for many, many years to come. Thanks for bringing this to our attention and having this conversation. Appreciate your time, Margaret. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's Margaret McKinnon. She's the Homewood Chair in Mental Health and Trauma and Associate Prof of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster. Backyard practice drills, online skill challenges, video chats with teammates and coaches. Those are some of the ideas that parents can use to make sure their kids are still getting some physical and social benefits of sport with everything uh, off the table right now. Joining us with more this morning is mom and associate director at the University of Alberta's campus and community recreation program, Christine Legault. Hi, Christine. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I point out that you're a mom because, hey, we're all kind of in the same boat with our kids. They're stuck at home, can't send them to the sport. So trying to look for other ideas and ways to make sure they're still getting some of those benefits. Oh, yes. That's the biggest challenge is how do you how do you do that in this new normal? Mm-hmm. So uh, ideas for us, I mean, online is really kind of the way it goes. But also now as of this weekend, we can get the kids out and doing a little more out in the uh, not on the playgrounds, but in the park areas. Yeah, you can actually go into the fields and do practicing with your with your family and people that you live with. So that's a big difference because we have a small backyard and it makes it really challenging to do some soccer practice drills in our backyard. Well, of, co- of course, if they're part of sport, you want to keep them sharpened. Uh, but other than that, what a great opportunity to get them off devices. So it seems like it's win-win, not just for the kids, but for the parents as well. Oh, that one hits me hard. Yes, that's a, that's a challenge is to get them off their devices and get out in the community because they are still part of the community. Other suggestions for us to keep those kids connected to sport? Yeah, you know, connecting with your uh, with your teammates online is, is a great piece, and doing some um, some practice skills with them online was great. So we do one one day a week um, workout with the team, and then we have a weekly challenge with the team as well. So this week is get out there, run with your family or by yourself for two point five kilometers. Submit that for a chance to win a fun prize, just to get them a little bit more excited to to partake in some of those challenges. Ah, prizes and bribery work every time. <laughs> you Two point, betcha. 2.5 <laughs> kilometers. I'll be in my car driving beside them the whole way. Uh, could, you, <laughs> you could do a walk ride. <laughs> could, it, could it also be a good opportunity to not just focus on the sport they may be familiar with, but maybe uh, try a new skill? Yeah, it'd be a great time to try a new skill right now. But honestly, the, the biggest part that I'm challenging, uh, being challenged with as a mom, is just getting them active in general. Mm-hmm. So trying a new skill might help with that. But, you know, just getting them to remain active, it, it, it's a big challenge. And really, you know, the, that's our our thing as parents is we are probably not getting the exercise we're used to as well with gym's clothes. So why not go out and do it together, have some fun and just get some fresh air and exercise together? Yeah, because not only are their schedules, you know, adjusting ours are as well. For sure. Yeah. Any online resources that we can hit? I mean, obviously, if they're part of a team already, they'll have the contacts of their teammates. Maybe the coaches might be putting something together. But what if if a a child's not part of a team? Is there somewhere people can go to get uh, some information on how to keep busy and maybe follow some kind of a routine? Yeah, the two main ones that I've been using, obviously, is through the University of Alberta, mm-hmm. the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Rec, and the Campus Communication or Campus and Community Recreation websites. There's online workouts weekly. There's a Learn to Run program on there as well. 
right for you, Andrew. And yes. um, <laughs> and there's also Free Footy I've been using. So Free Footy has um, weekly workouts and weekly sports skills. So they have Monday, they have basketball. Wednesday, they have soccer. And you actually get to do the skills with somebody in the community. So we had a um, University of Alberta soccer player on there. There was a, you know, elite basketball player one day volunteering their time and giving um, back to the community. It's It's been great. Awesome suggestions. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thank you. Have a great long weekend. That is Christine Legault, Associate Director at the University of Alberta's campus and community recreation. 709 now with over 86,000 deaths now attributed to COVID-19 in the U.S. The coronavirus crisis clearly still the top headline south of the border. With the latest, we're joined this morning by Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Hi, Jackson. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us ahead of a long weekend here. What's the overall feeling for you down in the States and, and the people that you're talking to with the reopening of the economy underway and number of cases and deaths still rising? You know, it really depends on where you are. I mean, there's a lot of frustration in a lot of places that case numbers seem to be low and that things have been slow to reopen. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of caution in other places, like here in Washington, D.C., where they've actually extended stay-at-home orders until the middle of June because uh, we're still having really high case numbers in and around the D.C. area. Uh, the numbers continue to grow. They're not on the downswing yet. And I think the last point here is that there's a note of caution because places like Texas, which reopened two weeks ago, are now starting to see their highest daily levels of cases and deaths. The numbers are increasing, and we know two weeks is about the timeline for that. Jackson, you mentioned uh, D.C. and, of course, uh, Texas as uh, you're seeing a bit of a resurgence, if you will. But uh, hot spots, every, every week we talk with you, it seems like there's a different uh, area of hot spots. Where are the latest uh, besides uh, the Texas and D.C. areas? Yeah, I mean, it, it continues to spread because, of course, the U.S. is such a big country. There are no travel restrictions, and it's growing unevenly. So those are sort of leading to it to pop up in different places at different times. Uh, Florida has started to see some growth in its case numbers as well. Uh, it's really, I think, going to come down to uh, how the reopening unfolds and what kind of the impact that has, you know, a few weeks from now. And I think that's when we'll get a fuller sense of what the impact of reopening has been. You mentioned Florida. We're hearing that some seniors in Florida are increasingly angry with the president. Uh, and that's got the Republicans pretty worried about uh, Trump's chances of winning a second term because they need the seniors, don't they? They do. Uh, you know, this is something that's happening right across the U.S. is that Republicans in general are worried about their fortunes going forward because, of course, I think the president's strategy was to run for re-election based on the health of the economy. That is obviously uh, in the toilet due to no fault of his own right now. But at the same time, his marks for the handling of the coronavirus crisis are also uh, tanking. They're down about 10 points in the past few weeks uh, because Americans are increasingly dissatisfied with the way things are going. You know, the fact that uh, case numbers and deaths are on a, if they're declining, it's very, very slow. I mean, we're still seeing about 3,000 people die every two days in this country. Uh, yesterday, there were 27,000 new cases across the country. So there's no sense this is under control. And then you've got the fact that the president sort of seems to be ignoring the advice of his own high-profile and very popular scientists when it comes to reopening the economy and, and sort of the realistic mm -hmm. situation that Americans face. Well, and uh, Anthony Fauci has been very vocal in uh, the warnings that he has presented, uh, not just, I'm um, sure, to the president, but uh, publicly uh, about the dangers of reopening. So you, you really see this uh, battle brewing behind the scenes. Well, not even so much behind the scenes, but out front in the media. Yeah, I mean, Fauci's testimony this week was that if you reopen too quickly, you risk touching off an outbreak that you can't control. 
And he added that schools have to reopen really cautiously because we don't know the full impact of this on young children. There are uh, more than 100 cases now of this mysterious inflammatory illness taking place in kids in the U.S. And uh, the CDC actually just put out a warning yesterday saying that uh, uh, this is something that's likely linked to COVID-19 and has to be watched very cautiously. You know, Jackson, you were talking about some polling numbers and that. You've got an election coming up and and that's really very secondary still, isn't it, in terms of what's the hot topic right across the U.S.? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a whole other debate that has to take place about how exactly the election unfolds as well and whether there needs to be a greater push for mail-in balloting, for example, which is something California is pressing ahead with. Uh, but you're right. I think the, the election is going to end up being a referendum on the coronavirus response because I think we know at this point pretty safe to say that this is not going to be resolved by November. An interesting uh, report yesterday that the CDC had released guidelines uh, for some of the reopening, which included schools, businesses, other organizations. But we're also hearing that there was a portion for churches as well that had been removed. Can you tell us about that? Um, You know, I haven't read a ton of detail on that, but it's not surprising in the sense that there's been pushback from the White House and the administration on some of the CDC guidelines. And what we saw originally when stay-at-home orders were issued in states like Florida, for example, they included an exemption for religious institutions at first, allowing them to stay open through this. So this is sort of a a touchy point, and you get the sense that uh, the Trump administration is wary of who its base is and how that base is impacted by uh, reopening its stay-at-home orders, and essentially allowing churches to reopen quickly would be seen as probably a pretty popular move amongst the core constituency. Uh, Jackson, is Donald Trump still avoiding uh, the daily conferences with the media and trying to stay uh, lower, you know, a little bit of a lower profile in terms of what he says daily? Uh, I wouldn't say lower profile. I would say <laughs> different profile. So yeah, we're, not, we're not getting those daily uh, coronavirus briefings, but the president is still popping up on camera uh, at least once a day to make some point. And it's not so much anymore uh, about providing information to Americans about the response. It's just to, uh, you know, make political points at this point. So And, and uh, on Twitter, day, too. <laughs> exactly. So one day this week he popped up to refute Anthony Fauci, for example. Uh, But we're not learning a lot new about the response other than sort of broad platitudes that he thinks a vaccine will be ready sooner than than the experts say it'll be ready, as as one example. On this side of the border, we're having uh, some, uh, although not exactly official, depending on where you are. We do know that, for example, Albertans are not able to book campsites uh, in B.C. for the long weekend or perhaps moving ahead uh, to the east and through Saskatchewan. I'm wondering if there's been any interstate uh, travel bans or, you know, suggestions or if people are still traveling freely wherever they want uh, through the states. There are no formal bans and you can travel freely. Some states have talked about uh, and tried to implement quarantines on people coming from New York, New Jersey and Connecticut when the outbreak there was at its peak. But there's never been any sort of formal lockdown. And I think there's more and more research that actually suggests that the outbreak in New York ended up being seeded throughout the country because people were able to get on planes or drive and get out of town and spread the virus that way. Hey, Jackson, I don't know if you've had much looked into this this morning outside of COVID and politics, but a big earthquake down in Nevada this morning. Yeah, I just saw that pop up on my phone uh, as if we needed any more headaches. Yeah, right. so 6.4 <laughs> quake and no word of any uh, big damage or problems at this point, but uh, that's cer- certainly something we'll be watching too. Yeah, it sounds like it was right on the uh, California-Nevada border, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you for your time this morning, Jackson. We always appreciate uh, catching up with you on Fridays. Take care. That is Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News.